So, Will. Yeah? In this movie, a woman who lives in 2001 makes the choice to travel back to the year 1876. It is a choice. It's a choice. A choice she does not consider. An era where cars are maybe just emerging, might predate them a little bit, which means horses are the main form of transportation, which means the entire world is covered in horse poop. Indeed. She will be stepping in horse poop every day she walks out of her house. I mean, hopefully not deep in horse poop, but it's going to happen. So, I have to ask, if you were forcibly transported back to 1876, well, one, you would probably fare better as a straight man. Indeed, this would go much better for me than it would for you or our guest. What would you miss the most? So, I thought a lot about this. There are a lot of obvious things, modern conveniences, electronics, antibiotics, civil rights, etc., But I think it's the little things that would really be obnoxious over time. Because, like, hopefully you go back to 1876, you anticipate some of the larger societal changes. You anticipate, like, okay, electricity is not going to be around. Indoor plumbing will be dicey. You know what kind of things you're not going to think of before you go? Ice cream is not going to be common. It will be a rare luxury. What is the point? Basically anything frozen or refrigerated. Right. And that's what I would miss. I want ice cream specifically so I can turn it into milkshakes, which generally requires further electronics. So that, I think, would be the thing that, in the midst of all of the general hardships of living in the 19th century, knowing that milkshakes exist, that ice cream can be had frequently, but I cannot have them, would be just this, like, little niggling agony at the end of every day. Fiona. Sorry, I kind of want to cry at the idea of no ice cream, actually. It's tragic. Let's take a a moment of silence to mourn the loss of ice cream in the life of Kate McKay. Okay, so mine, uh, I know, I mean, you kind of just said it's an obvious one, but it would have to be toilets and indoor plumbing. Let me tell you, I am not using a chamber pot. Well, you don't have to use a chamber pot. You could get one of those outhouses with the little crescent moon on the door like Shrek has. Yeah, I'm not doing that either. I feel like that would honestly be more pleasant. Like, in the moment, it would smell bad while you're there. But when you leave the outhouse, it's gone. When you use a chamber pot, there's just a pot full of your own excrement sitting under your bed for eight hours. And then you dump it out and it might land on some unsuspecting passerby. Outhouses are the more civilized version of evacuating your person. I would agree. And yet, I still don't want to do that. <laughs> One of my favorite historical stories about outhouses is from around this period. The Sears catalog was spread far and wide throughout the United States in the late 19th century. And many people would keep the Sears catalog in their outhouse and just tear out pages to use for toilet paper. And when they switched from newsprint to glossy paper, they got complaints from people who didn't feel that the glossy paper was as comfortable on their butts. That sounds really painful. It does. This is also the era where you could order from your Sears Roebuck catalog a house. That's right. Oh, yeah. They would just bring you, I guess, a flat-packed Ikea house on a trade card. Did it come put together, or did they give you, like, four sides and you put them up and it was like that put the roof on who would build it you would you would you and your neighbors they would send you the box and just a little allen wrench and a (laughs) packet of instructions that has no words just weirdly animated people (laughs) if you have tried wiping your butt with a modern day sears catalog 
and you can tell us about the glossy paper feel, I would love to hear from you. Tweet at us, send us an email, hashtag glossmybutt. We want to know how it feels. Cut that whole I thing out. Hashtag. hashtag gloss my butt. No. I think one thing I would miss for sure would be the fact that 1876, it's getting easier with the railroads becoming more prevalent. But the idea that going from a place like Washington in the District of Columbia to anywhere in Maryland would be a challenge is horrifying to me. It would be a trip. You live your whole life within like a four mile radius. And just the idea that you can't leave, you can't go meet any people. Better hope you like your neighbors. I know. Like, what if you have a feud? This is why everyone seems to be mad at each other. Although, counterpoint, in this film, our lead, Kate McKay, has lived for 10 years on Manhattan and has never left Manhattan. That was insane. That was the weirdest part. She was like, I live on an island and I've never crossed any of these bridges. You never been to Brooklyn? It's like, it's 2001. Also, does she just specifically mean the bridges? Did she take the subway? Has she taken the subway or the tunnels outside of Manhattan? I don't think so. I think she's never left the island. Does she she not have any family members? So, here's a point. Maybe that's why she's more okay going to the 19th century. Think about what you were just talking about being a reality in the 19th century. You can't travel far easily. She's already accustomed to that lifestyle. You know what else I'd miss? We also never see her eat ice cream. That's true. I'd miss the Geneva Conventions. She's, you know, about 30 years from gas attacks happening in World War One, And just the idea that that'll happen. I'm reading a book about ancient biological and chemical warfare and... We live in a much better time than any time in the past. Indeed. There's a lot of stuff going on, but reading this, it's like, you don't have to face down a horde of stampeding elephants that are about to attack your city by sending out flaming pigs at them. So humans have evolved some. I think a lot about something Barack Obama said when he was president, where he's like, If you had to choose a moment in history to be born and you didn't know ahead of time who you were going to be, you choose now. Because the world has... Never been less violent, healthier, better educated, more tolerant, with more opportunity for more people and more connected than it is today. And on that note, let's talk about a woman who doesn't choose to live in now. (sighs) Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic romances to answer one of the most important questions of our day. Why a woman would go to live in the 19th century. I mean, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? Is she deciding to go back to a time before bras for a reason? Or, I mean, are any of these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if nothing makes sense and we're all doomed. Uh, We will dig in. We'll see what's there. This week, of course, as you have already heard, we are rejoined once more by the queen of hashtags herself. So it's exciting that we've already generated one this episode. Remember, hashtag gloss my butt. Gross. We're joined here by hashtag Fifi Fierce. Hey! The incomparable are most guested guest oh easily do i get an award when i reach my 10th podcast uh sure what do you want i don't know a plaque we could give you a sears catalog to wipe your butt with (laughs) no thank you we could talk when we hit 10 okay anyway 
Today we're discussing the 2001 film, Kate and Leopold, starring Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman, and a ton of other people you recognize that are kind of nobodies at this time. Very much so! Viola Davis plays a cop who only shows up to tell Hugh Jackman to pick up dog poop. That was Viola Davis? Yeah. That was Viola Davis. That's why she's so good. Oh my gosh, that was incredible. Although I, I did love when he just looks at her and goes, absolutely not. Because he's refusing to pick up the poop that Liev Schreiber's dog poops out. Kristen Schaal plays the woman that his uncle is trying to set him up with in 1876. This is Kristen Schaal's film debut. Had she been on TV before, or is this just, like, it for she, her big appearance on the scene? She had been in a couple episodes of one or two shows. I knew she looked familiar. Yeah, but this is her first time in a film. And then our old friend... <laughs> We've also got Bradley Whitford, who is at the peak of the West Wing at this point. This is between seasons two and three. We've got... Of course, in our leads, Hugh Jackman, who is just starting to blow up. His first American movie was X-Men, the year before this came out. Before that, he was mostly a stage actor in Australia and in London. Famously, he was in the London revival of Oklahoma, where he did very well. He won a couple awards for that. But then when that production moved to New York, they did not bring him along because he was not famous enough. And then Fox cast him as the lead in their X-Men movies. And look where he is now. Exactly. It worked out really well. Hugh Jackman went on to work with this director, specifically in more X-Men movies. Yeah, so this movie is directed by James Mangold, which feels kind of weird, because he's known for directing, like, thrillers and westerns. He directed two Wolverine movies, including Logan, which is very much steeped in the western genre. And then X-Men Origins, Wolverine, right? No, he didn't direct that one. Okay. He directed The Wolverine. What's that? So there's X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is... Exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. In that one, Hugh Jackman and Leo Schreiber play half-brothers. Then there's The Wolverine, which is set in the main timeline of the X-Men movies, where Wolverine goes to Japan. It's adapted from a very famous comic storyline. Then there's Logan, which is set in the future of the X-Men movies, where Wolverine and Professor X are among the last mutants alive. But... The Wolverine just doesn't exist, does it? I completely miss it. I have no idea what you're talking about. This movie came out. Yeah. There was a movie that was called The Wolverine. Yeah, it's pretty good. The last act is kind of a bummer, but I saw it. It was the first X-Men movie I saw in theaters because I was late to the franchise. It made $130 million. Is this the forkhand one? So (laughs) you might know that Wolverine has claws that come out of his hands. And my mother, seeing a trailer for this movie, referred to Fork Hands. I saw the movie at midnight, stayed at my friend's place, and came home the next day. And when my mom picked me up from the metro station, she had rubber-banded a fork to each of her hands in the spirit of James Mangold's film, The Wolverine. Your mom is the best. Fork Hands would also be an acceptable title for this movie. The Fork Hands. They should rebrand So Mangled is known for things like Logan, 310 to Yuma, Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie. And so this is a weird movie in his filmography. Why does this exist? It's really strange. I have a lot of questions after watching this. Like? All right, my first one. So Leopold comes to the future, the present. This is Leopold played by a very young, handsome Hugh Jackman. Yes. And he is supposedly the inventor of the elevator. Yes. Okay. So he invents the elevator, but apparently not yet. So he comes to the present 
And uh, Liam Shriver, Stuart, says something about elevators, and Leopold has no idea what that word means. And every single elevator in at least New York is not working. But all the shafts are there. Exactly! So obviously it was invented. Was it invented by some subpar inventor who can't make a good one? But why do they all fail at the same time? I wonder if it was invented by a subpar inventor named Otis. Right. Who we find out at the end is a friend who was at the party. Otis was there. Right, the time travel doesn't make any sense. None. I don't get it. They put no effort into explaining this time travel at all. And I wouldn't care except for the elevator thing, which is super weird. And it's also, because we know who invented the elevator and they're now ascribing it to this other made-up person, it would be like if we had a movie that was like Kate and Andrew and Andrew travels to the future and we're like, wow, light bulbs don't work anymore because (laughs) Andrew was going to discover the tungsten filament. Time traveling is that at the beginning, it really seemed to me like Stuart went back for the purpose of bringing Leopold with him. He went back for the purpose of seeing Leopold, seeing his papers. He wanted to look at all that stuff, but he didn't intend to bring Leopold with him. And he actually, when he's hanging off the Brooklyn Bridge, he's telling Leopold, like, I will be okay. Let me go. Right. Now, why did he want all the papers? See, this is a man obsessed with elevators. It's the only reason I can think of for why he would care about this much. So in the director's cut of this movie, there is... I did not watch it. I read about it. Okay. There is an additional scene. There are a couple extra scenes, but there's one in which we're told that Stuart is Leopold's descendant. And so Stuart also, as a scientist, wants to learn more about his scientist ancestor. This scene was cut from the movie because audiences were like, wait a minute. If Stuart is Leopold's descendant and Leopold marries Kate, then doesn't that mean that Kate was having a relationship with her descendant prior to the start of the movie? Oh yeah, that's weird. But it would have been a reason for him to have gone to the past, specifically to find Leopold. Instead, we just get like, he discovered that he could go to the past, and he did, and that's where he wound up by the Brooklyn Bridge, which was not open in 1876. But he had, like, a fixation on Leopold when right. he was there, which I didn't understand. Yeah. Fiona, had you seen this movie before? Uh, no, I had not. Okay. None of us had. Okay. I was worried that Fiona came to us with this movie, like, <laughs> I love it so much. Mark. <laughs> no, I knew... <laughs> it felt made for TV. I knew how this movie ended, and I knew that you, Mark had to witness it. I also did not, going into this, realize that this movie included time travel. Oh, okay. I thought, based on the cover, like, the cover art and the name Leopold, which is a very old-school name, that it was just a period movie. And I was like, oh, maybe they chose me for this because I like Jane Austen and I like period things and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, oh, now we're in New York in the present. It's 2001. It was weird. So you do like period movies. I do. Would you want to go live in that era? No. Well, there are some things that I would like. Like? Uh, I just sit around and read a book all day and no one would ask any questions about it. I need to just say this. They establish that Kate is very successful, respected in her field. She's getting promoted to run, like, the New York office. This is a woman Yeah, who she's going to clearly... be the, uh, the top New York honcho. We never hear another title for this job. Nope. And if it's an advertising agency, it sounds like that should be the CEO. Because where else would an advertising agency be headquartered? Yeah. <laughs> but I, but JJ Bradley Whitford is still going to be like the head head. I right. think from he, London. I think he's going to be like 
some kind of like pseudo managerial role where he's like gone up to a point where he's like the company's doing great i could be kind of hands off and just raking dollars but back to my point this is a woman who clearly is good at her job and is moving forward and the movie decides in the end that women don't want jobs they just want to be pampered and be chivalried at by men and she's willing to sacrifice years of hard work a promotion to being the head honcho of the new york office for a man like that's the only thing that she's giving it up for but he's a duke i mean he is attractive it's new york there are other attractive men there it is a fashion capital models live there she can do just as well i was pissed at this movie i mean obviously it makes no sense it doesn't even it feels like something from i don't even know when this movie could have been made because it's clearly anti-women's liberation which doesn't feel very 2001 but maybe with the election of bush we all decided that we hate women i don't know well i mean this would have been written before that yeah i guess but i can't think of another reason why this movie is like women don't want jobs i think uh leopold should have stayed in the present that's obviously the better solution because he doesn't like his time period well he did like how it's slower sure that was it but, but also, walking around on a weekend satisfied him there. Right. Yeah, he, he was really adjusting. I was proud of him. I really feel like this movie would have been much better if it was about a man who came from the past. It was like, women can't have jobs. And then watch Kate kick ass in her career and realize like, wow, look at this time. It's so good. I'm happy here. I was unhappy in my time. Maybe I should stay. Instead, he is... Immediately adjusted to all of the, like, gender dynamics to an extent where, like, he tells her that, like, oh, her job is really good. She says market research. He's like, ah, fine application for women. Research is perfect for the feminine mind. And, like, he's pretty fine with that. I was really impressed that he was able to have an interaction with Officer Viola Davis without having a problem with a woman or black police officer. Well, he said he has courted a working woman before. He said he courted a librarian. That's right. Yes. He mentions her pants and then is just like... But you do you. I guess women wear pants now. So this movie, it's worth noting, was not like incredibly well received by critics when it came out. But it did all right. It made $47 million in 2001. That's solid, respectable box office for a rom-com like this. But you can see some of the steam going out of it a little bit. This is Meg Ryan's last traditional rom-com. So we're marking the end of an era with the turn of the century a little bit. So she did not go out on her highest boot. Decidedly not. Hugh Jackman did get a Golden Globe nomination for this. Are you serious? Yes, indeed. He lost to Gene Hackman for Royal Tenenbaums. Good decision. A much better movie than this. I haven't seen it, but I'm happy that this did not win. We should watch it. That's one of my favorite movies. Okay. It's a movie that invariably makes me cry. Oh. But in a good way. Okay. In 2010, it also placed on Time's list of the top 10 worst chick flicks. It could maybe hit, like, number 10, but I feel like we've watched worse. There are worse. This is the only one that we've covered that made the list, though. What else is on there? So the other ones are The Ugly Truth, All About Steve, Knights in Rodanthe, A Walk to Remember. So this is just... the only one I've seen so far. Guys, pay attention. This is our November schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Made in Manhattan. Uh, uh, no. I don't remember if I've seen that. Valentine's Day. That one's fun. (laughs) Bride Wars. Oh, I did see that. That was pretty bad. A Cinderella Story. I just watched that for the first time recently. What'd you think? It was fine. And Crossroads. I haven't seen that one. 
that's a Britney Spears one, right? Yeah. yeah. Remember when Britney Spears had an acting career? She had Crossroads. Indeed. I feel like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and Maid of Honor must be worse than all of those. I also think those might be worse movies than this one, but I'm not sure. I, I think about Maid of Honor either. is better than this. Maid of Honor is probably better than this, but... Nothing has infuriated me quite like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Everyone is terrible in that movie. Worse than Something Borrowed? I would have to watch Something Borrowed again. I remember so little of it. Okay. There's like almost a malevolence to the way that Kate Hudson acts in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Every character in that movie is a bad person. Whereas in this one, you have the leads who are both, you know, like, good people. Gotta watch out, Kate McKay's a little clumsy. Whoops! And then the side characters, you have Natasha Lyonne in the least Natasha Lyonne role of all time. She isn't rasping or chain-smoking. It threw me off. But she plays the nice secretary who's obsessed with romance novels. And everyone is kind of generally just a nice person. And then in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, you just have the scum of the earth. And I think that's as good a note as any to start talking about the relationship at the center of this movie. All right, so point number one. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and decode the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. It starts off when they meet in Stuart's apartment. Real quick, in the setup, we get my favorite line in this movie. It's sheer awfulness. Is it the erection speech? No. Oh, that was pretty bad. They're giving a speech at the dedication of the Brooklyn Bridge, which again, did not open until the 1880s. And the architect is going on about his magnificent erection, and Leo Schreiber's in the background laughing because he's from the future, so he gets a sex joke out of it where everyone else is like, yes, indeed, this erection, the Brooklyn Bridge. My favorite line is after Leif Schreiber pepper sprays Hugh Jackman. When he wakes up the next morning, he says, my eyes feel like steak au poivre. Oh, I did that. Which is just the worst line. (laughs) (laughs) Hugh Jackman does his best reading it, but I listened to that and I was just like, this is... One of the worst written movies ever, isn't it? It's not amazing. So Jackman is supposed to get married because his parents are dead. He lives with his uncle. The family fortune's drying up. And his uncle, who is played by the guy who's in charge of art in the White House on the West Wing, the cranky butler guy, is telling him, like, I don't care. You must get married. And Hugh Jackman's like, marriage is the promise of eternal love. And I've never shared a little love with anybody, so how could I promise it forever? Why does a duke and his uncle live in New York? I think they're just there to get him married. But it sounds like they also live in that house. Yeah, they definitely do. It doesn't make sense. It make, uh, There's no explanation. I fully would believe this is a little early for it, but a British noble whose money is running out going to the US and marrying a rich heiress, that's like very common. Yeah. But not living there if you're a duke, because that's the highest title that's not king or queen. Correct. It does not make much sense. They did not do their research, apparently. Well, again, we had the bridge is not open yet when he wakes up in Leif Schreiber's apartment, and Leif Schreiber's trying to explain who he is. Hugh Jackman goes, I don't care if you're Jack the Ripper. What am I doing here? The Jack the Ripper murders had not yet happened in 1876. If they had said this movie in 1896, I feel like most of the problems would have been solved. Yeah, Pirates of Penzance also had not premiered in 1876. And yet Hugh Jackman knows all the words to Modern Major General. The internet exists in 2001. It should be easy to check these things. 
Indeed. Anyway. We also know Hugh Jackman's like fairly progressive in his politics because his uncle is like, we're monarchy. You have to just do what is necessary. And he's like, monarchy's dead. The real monarchs are the people who make themselves. And he starts listing off inventors because they're the people who impress him. Also, robber baron seems to be what he's a fan of. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, Fiona, back to your points. So uh, when they're meeting, he actually says that she looks familiar and... I knew immediately that apparently she was has Keelan back in time. So, to be clear, Meg Ryan meets Hugh Jackman in Liev Schreiber's apartment. Yes. Because Hugh Jackman follows Liev Schreiber back to 2001, and Liev Schreiber, whose character is named Stuart, and Meg Ryan, who is the titular Kate, dated for four years, have been broken up for a month, and Kate lives below Stuart. And they have the thinnest floors on the planet. Enough that she could, like, tase him through the ceiling or something. And they can just, like, fully hear each other's conversations. Yeah. The dog shot collar, actually... That's what it was. ...could potentially work from that distance. Through the floor. I mean, it sounds like it's pretty crappy apartment building with thin floors, so maybe. But it's pushing it. And we know that their relationship ended kind of crankily with... Kate being like, I wasted my best years on you. But they still see a lot of each other because they live in the same building and apparently their windows don't lock. So anybody who climbs up and down the fire escape can climb into anyone's apartment. So they build a community. Stewart's response to I gave you the best years of my life was, those were your best years, which is harsh. (laughs) Yeah. So Kate is determined to get her Palm Pilot back from Stewart's apartment because again, this is 2001. And that's how she runs into Leopold. Right, and he, first, he does not want to let her in. He says he's been warned about her, and he makes the comment about having courted a librarian before. She also is convinced, basically, that he's crazy, and that... Yeah, because he's a man who insists that he's a duke from the 19th century. ...or something, because he thinks he lives in the 1800s as a duke. So she thinks he's crazy, but she also kind of is like, all right, I guess we have to deal with him. Stuart is now in the hospital. Yeah, so... Stuart had gone to take his dog for a walk. He is the worst dog on the planet. And he tried to go in the elevator, but all elevators disappeared because the inventor of the elevator has gone to 2001 before he invented it. So we still have elevator shafts, but no elevator. He falls down to the bottom, has to be taken to the hospital. Kate finds the dog hanging out in the hallway. And so she makes Leopold take the dog out for a walk, which is how he then has this situation with Officer Viola Davis where the dog takes a dump and he refuses to pick up its turd. Yeah. In the meantime, Kate's brother Charlie comes back early from being out of town and somehow I missed something because it wasn't until like 10 minutes later that I realized he was her brother. I thought he was like the new boyfriend or something. There had been a throwaway reference to her brother coming back in town, but it's not clear who he is when he shows up. Right, exactly. So he then meets Leopold in Stuart's apartment, and he invites him to come down and have dinner with him and Kate that night, which she is not happy about. Leopold does not like the food that Kate has cooked. He tries requesting the next course. Yes, and she's like, "Uh, no. But he's very proper. He stands up whenever she comes to or leaves the table. The production did hire a 19th century etiquette expert in order to help out with all this. Are you serious? Yeah. You really didn't need it because I learned those lessons from my parents. Like, there's nothing that extravagant in his etiquette besides standing up. Um, did you learn the meanings of different colors of flowers? Oh, I did forget about that part. Yeah. I feel like those are a lie. Like, were people actually 
thinking this when they sent bouquets. There absolutely are associations, different meanings that go with different colors and different types of flowers. It's just weird when all of them, he was just like, this one means certain death and I will kill you. And I was like, would you really send a flower that meant that? Is that how you would communicate that? (laughs) Potentially, that's a cool threat. Somebody goes outside and they're like, holy crap, it's a cabbage leaf. This means they come tonight. Horsehead in the bed is a better choice. We should make a movie about florists who work for the mob who have to help them coordinate all the different messages that they're sending. And we've got a guy who's like an apprentice learning to do it, and maybe he sends the wrong bouquet, and that causes chaos! And we have to deal on the mean streets of, we gotta pick a weird city, Birmingham, Alabama, all of the different floral politics that fall out. Martin Scorsese just called me and Venmoed $50 million into my bank account for this movie? Yeah. I guess it's happening. Get excited. The movie is called The Butcher's Bouquet. All right. I was thinking floral war rolls. Floral war (laughs) 2. Anyway, we're still at point number one. So then Kate decides that he, despite being a little bit crazy, he would be the perfect guy to be in their butter commercial. Because he's very sincere. Right. So she brings him to work and she's explaining to JJ why he's great, how he like brings breakfast in bed and... JJ is Kate's boss, played by Bradley Whitford, and they have kind of a flirty relationship. It's mostly him, but she's like definitely like, I want to know every time he calls, like, let me know, which is a business thing. It makes sense, especially because she's waiting for this promotion. But he has definitely been kind of flirting towards her in ways that he could get away with, like when she spills a bunch of coffee on herself and he has another shirt ordered in for her. Like, you could plausibly be like, I'm being nice here, but... As Leopold says later, his intentions are obvious. And he uh, offers to chaperone a dinner that is going to be occurring between Kate and JJ. And Kate responds by saying that she doesn't need a chaperone. Like, look, Leopold, you and I are hanging out right now. Do I need a chaperone? And Leopold says, if I were courting you, I would have informed you of my intentions in writing. I would like to note, at no point in this film does Leopold inform Kate of his intentions to court her in writing. The only writing they exchange is he says, I'm really sorry about being a jerk to you the other day. Could I apologize by making you dinner? That is true. He's not the gentleman he pretends to be. Well, and that comes up. He's a scoundrel. As well. I'm thoroughly displeased. So he gets the job. He offers to chaperone the dinner. And they're walking back. And Leopold tries to get Kate to ride in a carriage in Central Park. This is a very busy point one. I know, but there was so much happening. This is like the first half of the movie. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot. I, I, I'm I, not even kidding. I sat there and I was like, oh, okay, the movie could end now and I would be happy. And then I looked and there was still a half hour left. Because so, they have to go back to 1876. Yeah. But I thought maybe he would stay in the present. So I didn't uh, think You were a fool. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, everyone would know what an elevator is. Assumedly, people that had worked on elevators before could fix them, but they would not work for the rest of time. There would be no functioning elevators. That was the word. That was, no, I can't even talk about that. And thanks to Andrew coming to 2001, we would have no tungsten filaments. Thanks for Andrew. Yay. (laughs) What a guy. So, in this long point, Kate's like, no, no, only the tourists ride in the carriages, and she gets... But to Leopold, it's like, of course you ride in a carriage. This is how you get around. I'm a wealthy man from 1876. But she gets robbed while she's trying to hail a taxi. And she runs after the guy for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Leopold comes riding up on a white horse. And so he has presumably 
rented this carriage and then told the carriage driver, I just want one of the horses to ride freely through Central Park. A thing that I am sure is heavily restricted, if not outright prohibited. Those horses also die at insane rates. Right. I bet, yeah. This is not helping that. So he's just riding this horse wildly through the park. He rides up past Kate, hauls her up with one arm onto the horse behind him, which she is apparently fully capable of doing. She must have been a horse girl growing up. I think she was raised on the steps of Mongolia, and they ride down the thief and are able to retrieve her bag. All he has to do is give a dramatic little speech. And the thief throws the bag down and runs away. And the strangers applaud. If a guy ran up to me on a horse, I'd be like, you can have the purse. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to win there, and horses are scary. That's true. So then they go back, they hop in the carriage ride. Uh, The carriage driver calls Leopold Kate's boyfriend, but she doesn't correct him. Instead, she's just like, yeah, my boyfriend is really good at riding horses. And then, again, Leopold offers to chaperone the dinner. So that's point number one. We've got 15 minutes left of the movie. (laughs) This is the pre-connection. The pre-relationship. This really is all lead up. Like, that's the thing, is the first hour and 15 minutes of this movie are lead up. So, thank me for not using all of that as point negative 10 through zero. Because you know I could do that. She narrowed it to five points. It's true. It is hard to argue with that. All right, so point number two. Leo, do you enjoy opera? I do. Do you? Oh, yes. Keeps keeps me alive. Do you have a favorite? Bohem. La Bohem. La Bohem. I've seen it 12 times. It's, that's how I learned to speak French. We start with the dinner that JJ and Kate have. So they're supposed to have a business dinner. Kate believes that this will be about the future of the company because JJ is going to be going to the UK to work from there to live at his estate and someone has to be the top honcho in New York. And she's like, it's probably going to be me, right? I'm looking forward to this business meeting. So they go to the business meeting. And uh, one of the first questions JJ asks is about Leo and whether or not Kate is sleeping with him. And she says no, but she looks, she gives kind of a weird smile when she says that. And then JJ starts talking about him moving to England. And he's showing her pictures of the house and he invites her. He says he'll fly her out for the weekend to come visit. He invites her to the opera. He tries to feed her dessert. He's really, like, laying it on thick here. Oh, yeah. So then she says, you know, I thought this dinner was about the company and the promotion. We haven't talked about that. And he goes, you haven't even kissed me yet. It's wholly inappropriate. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Charlie and Leo have gone out. And they have this whole conversation about how to talk to girls and how to... Make your intentions clear because Charlie is a buffoon, basically. He's in love with Patrice. And like before going out with his friends, he's like, stay off Patrice. She's mine. Like she's the coolest. And Leopold is like, okay, cool. Congratulations. She's pretty. Charlie is actually an actor we've seen before on this podcast. He's the stoner from Clueless. Oh, right. And we see them actually all hanging out. And Charlie is telling a long and elaborate story that is quite boring and nobody really cares about it to the point that they're happy to just hear Leopold describe the vaults of the Louvre that he has toured. So then after that, Leopold takes it on himself to train Charlie in the arts of being a gentleman and teaching him how to talk to women, how to pick out bouquets of flowers, how to be sincere. He tells 
Charlie that his problem is he's always going for the joke. He's always got a tongue in his cheek and women like sincerity. And he gets Charlie to call up Patrice and ask her out. And on the phone, Charlie tells her that she looks nice, quote, like a Judy Bloom book, which I guess means cute, like the cute children on the cover of Judy Bloom books. I don't know. I've never even read those. I couldn't tell you what they look like. I have also not read them, but I've like seen the pictures. They're kids' books about kids. Yeah, I don't know anything about Judy Bloom. It seems like maybe that was his reading level, though. That's possible. <laughs> he and Ryan would be friends. I think so. They maybe studied acting under the same teacher Probably. who who teaches acting for illiterates. Yeah. He also, on the phone, asks Patrice out to a movie. She says yes. She says to 7 o'clock work. They say cool. They hang up. They do not, like, look at any showtimes or decide on a movie. So I guess they're just going to, like play Showtime Roulette, show up at 7 o'clock and see whatever's showing. Keep things exciting. I guess. Seven's a good time to do that if you are going to do it. It is. So they are out and Charlie realizes that Leopold has feelings for Kate and he starts giving him a hard time for not following his own advice. I do give him credit for not going to the worst movie impulse of being like, you can't date my sister. Instead, he's just like, cool, you should ask her out. And not only should he ask her out, he should do it right then and there. Yes. So they drunkenly burst into this nice restaurant where Kate is eating with JJ and they sit down and the four of them are now all at the table. And as everyone's talking, JJ realizes that there is some sort of connection between Kate and Leopold and he starts to get jealous. And so he starts to talk about his fluency in French, his love for La Boheme, the opera. And his estate in the UK. Yes. And this is when... Uh, Leopold is like, oh, you know French, and starts speaking in French. And JJ clearly has no idea what he's saying. And not only that, but it was a quote from the opera that JJ has been talking about all night, apparently incorrectly, naming the wrong characters. And uh, he looks pretty stupid. But also Leopold's being obnoxious. Yeah, he is. He calls JJ out on his mistakes and for how it's inappropriate to court a woman in his employ. Which is true. And he leaves. And... It's not really a great ending for the dinner. So that brings us to point number three, right? Dearest Catherine, I behaved as an imbecile last night, animated in part by drink, in part by your beauty, and in part by my own foolish pride. The next morning? Later that night? I think it's the next... No, it's later that night, because the note is there for her in the morning. Right. So we're all lucky that Stuart, Leo Schreiber, who has been in the hospital now for the rest of the movie, like, he fell down the elevator shaft, he's in the hospital, Leopold is just living in his apartment. It is unclear if he is dead for a solid half hour. Yeah, and then... They don't show... Like his, his body at the body bottom of the elevator. ambulance, anything like that for about half an hour. And then we see him getting into an ambulance. And then we see him at a hospital. And for whatever reason, the hospital decides that he's a suicide risk. They're like, you threw yourself down an elevator shaft. He's like, no, I thought there was an elevator there. And they were like, please, elevators don't exist. Just elevator shafts. They don't actually say that. I think it makes sense like, to have a session with a psychiatrist to check in. Not a great psychiatrist, but he doesn't comport himself well to convince the psychiatrist that he isn't a suicide risk. Sure. But it is weird how his whole medical trajectory goes where they have a session with a psychiatrist. Fine. Psychiatrist decides that he is enough of a suicide risk that he's like in a straitjacket half the time. He's kept in the hospital. I don't think he's ever in a full straitjacket, is he? He is during the meeting with the psychiatrist when he tries to burst out of the room. 
And he ultimately gets out of the hospital because he convinces one nurse that he's not crazy. It still looks like he maybe was sneaking out, though. He was trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. That nurse is losing her job. She should. So So anyway, Leopold is back in Stuart's apartment, and good thing Stuart has random feathers lying around. No, I did. I commented, where did this feather come from? This is one of the most infuriating scenes to me, because it's such a clear attempt at making a dumb, always from the 19th century joke, because they have him carve a quill... Out of a random feather. Out of a random feather. And then break ballpoint pens open to drain the ink into a jar. This means that he knows that these pens are for writing because he knows that there is ink inside. He clearly should be able to use a pen. I think they have pens at this time. They do. It's 1876. They're not using quills anymore. And yet he breaks open the insides of these pens to drain the ink out. I was pissed because it was such a dumb joke to go for it's really weird but he writes a note apologizing for his buffoonish behavior and asking if he can make it up to her by making her dinner on the roof the next night but she's still not sure if she wants to go she's still upset because it's very obvious that her career is being impacted jj's ignoring her he's making eyes at this other younger employee at the company yeah jj is really inappropriate and something needs to be done yeah but her assistant i mean it's worth noting you all saw what studio produced this movie. This is a Miramax film, which means that it is produced by a fellow named Bob and his brother named... You got this, Fiona. Starts with an H. Uh, I don't know. His last name starts with a W. Weinstein? Uh, so this okay. is the Weinstein studio. Okay, okay. JJ's inappropriate at work. Kate can't decide whether or not she should go to this dinner, but her plucky assistant is like you have to go that was the best apology note i've ever seen in my life so she goes and she goes up to the roof and leopold has gotten i think he cooked the food and he set up candles and he even hired a violin player like a street musician yes so they sit down they're having a little chat she talks about how she doesn't think love is real it might just be a myth he reveals that he is supposed to marry an American woman with money to save his family. And apparently this is when she finally believes that he is actually from the past and not a crazy person. I think the big convincing thing for her is when they visit his home. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Right. But I think at this point she's like, this dude is weird, but I like spending time with him. And I think a turning point is like, he knows where that secret compartment is. And here's the stuff I hid from my uncle. But before that, they dance, they kiss... Uh, And then the next day, they go touring around the city, and that's when they then go to the house, and he points out his family portrait with him in it. Uh, He shows her the secret compartment. Where he pulls out all the stuff he wanted to hide from his uncle. Someone lives in this house. Is it a house? Is it an art museum? Is it a school? It kind of feels to me, if they still have that portrait up... This feels like a historical preservation type deal. Yeah, but the room where he breaks open the secret compartment looks like a child's room. I thought it looked like a classroom for, like, preschool age kids. Uh, maybe that's it, then. So then they're hanging out. Oh, they talk about what he misses from his, the olden days. And then they're sitting on the fire escape, and he pulls out his mother's ring And he starts to ask a question. She falls asleep. He presumably was going to ask her to marry him. I know. Which is insane. Eh, He's from 1876. Yeah. For his timeline, it makes some sense. That is true. So he stays at her apartment. He also says he loves her. Yeah. He's like going to go home back upstairs to 
Stuart's apartment, and she's like, you should stay. And so they spoon, and he tells her he loves her. Yeah, I think she's asleep. I also think that. Yeah. Can we just talk about her neighbor, where she's like, look at that guy. He listens to the Breakfast at Tiffany's soundtrack and turns it off exactly at midnight. There? Across the street and a couple floors above him? very loud. His music is too loud. Yeah. I think there are laws against that. He's rude. This old man listening to the Breakfast at Tiffany's soundtrack till midnight. Yeah. Also, Breakfast at Tiffany's... I didn't think it was that great of a movie. I have not seen it. I just thought it was boring and predictable. I thought this movie was boring and predictable. Oh, yeah. All right. So anyway, so that's the end of point three. So point four is the next day. It's the big day of his commercial that he's shooting for her company. Uh, fresh creamery butter. Is there anything more comforting? I say there is. And perhaps you'll agree when you sample fat-free farmer's bounty. With the genuine essence of creamery butter in every bite. Right, so he got hired. It's this butter company. And he won them over with his sincerity. So in the commercial, they bring him some food. And let me tell you, all I could think of watching this was the Paddington 2 scene where Hugh Grant is doing the dog food commercial. That's a good take. Did you also notice that Hugh Jackman, when he's talking about the best kind of toast, involves that toast being covered in marmalade? Oh, I did not. He would get along well with Paddington. He would. So they bring him out uh, a piece of toast with this butter on it, and he eats it, and he refers to it as, like, saddle... Saddle so. Saddle so, yeah. And he says, it's disgusting, and I can no longer promote this product. It's his integrity. He's offended that she would ask him to advertise this food that is disgusting, and he says, "How basically, like, how can you live with yourself? This is really not true. This is bad. You're not telling the truth. You can't do this. And she's like, hey, I got to make a paycheck. I like, she's like, it's diet butter. No one expects it to taste good. I did like that. I did like that. So then they realize that they come from different worlds. They really don't have that much in common. And they don't even really know each other. And so they kind of part ways. But like, the conflict in this relationship is over the butter tastes bad. But I think that's the initial part. But it gets to the bigger idea that they come from different places. Not only time-wise, but also, like, financially and socioeconomically, and they just have different lifestyles. But guess what? In the end, all of that doesn't matter in an hour. It doesn't matter as long as you can get the woman to just not work, then her work won't be an issue. There you go. So, the final point. The future Duchess of Albany. Kate McKay. By the way, it's worth noting, for most of this movie, Leopold has continued to wear his 19th century outfit. It is only on rare occasions that he digs into Stuart's wardrobe. Yes. And they're not really the same body type either. Nope. But apparently he can wear Stuart's clothes. Now, they are half-brothers in X-Men Origins Wolverine. And maybe relatives in this movie. That's true. (laughs) Depending on which version you watch. So Stuart, now having gotten out of the hospital, has to take Leopold back to the past. And at the same time, JJ finds out that Kate dealt with the commercial issue, and he was impressed by that, and he tells her that she's going to get the promotion. So Kate calls Leopold at Stuart's apartment and is speaking into the answering machine, but Leopold is already back in the past at this point. So Stuart hears the voicemail. He doesn't really do anything about it. He's just over it. Charlie comes in, and he starts looking at Stuart's pictures from when he went back in the past and notices that Kate is in one of the pictures. So they rush over to get Kate. It's it's the last day. She has to go back in time today if she's going to be reunited with Leopold. So they go. She, meanwhile, has actually gotten the job. She is going to be top New York honcho. Like, she's good to go. She has reached the pinnacle of her career. 
up to this point. Like, thank goodness that JJ, among being a scumbag, is not holding her, not being into him against her in this promotion. Right. So they're going to have a big party where he's going to announce her promotion. Guess where it is? At Leopold's old house. What? Amazing. Which, to me, is like, why does she have to go to the bridge? There should have been some portal at the house for her to just... No, because the throwing off the Brooklyn Bridge adds stakes because you've, like, got to cross it. That's scary. You're really up high. And she's never left Manhattan. This is as far this away is the furthest from the she's, gotten. she's ever gone. That's true. So, meanwhile, elevators are working again. Big deal. Because Leopold went back and I guess invented them. F*** this movie. <laughs> Stuart and Charlie, they run to the work party. They meet up with Kate. They're like, look at this picture. You've got to go back. And she's like, no, I have to stay. I have to do my job and live here. And she goes to give her speech taking over as head New York honcho. And then she sees the pictures and she sees herself in the 19th century room, the room she's in right now, but in the past. And she's wearing the same dress too. And so she decides she's got to go. So she runs over to the bridge. Now, okay, here's, I have a lot of things about this too. So they tell her she has to walk out on this little plank thing, basically, to get to the point where she'll travel in time. You have to cross the girder. Yeah. So she's wearing high heels when she does this. And they keep getting stuck. Why didn't she, like, sit down and scooch herself across? Or just take off the shoes. Or that. That could have worked, too. But I feel like even I would have crouched down to be lower to the bar anyways, regardless of what shoes I was wearing. Because cars are going underneath. You could get blown off of it. Oh, the other reason they have to go off the bridge is because you need to achieve a certain velocity. I'm assuming 88 miles per hour. No, we're moving on. (laughs) This is true. You do have to hit a certain speed to travel through the portal. Okay. I assume it's 88 miles per hour. Kate When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Kate decides to throw herself off a bridge and in doing so, throw away over 100 years of women's liberation, returning to a time in which she is not allowed to work. She's the legal property of her husband. What's a vote when you are married? That's what this movie thinks. So she goes back in time after a cop tried to stop her from jumping off. Which added an unnecessary, like, two minutes to this already overlong movie. Yes. So she runs back in. She fights. She's trying to get into the building. They're not letting her in because it's a private party, just like the one she has just been at, at the same home. Meanwhile, Hugh Jackman has just told his uncle, like, I don't care anymore. I'll just marry whoever you want. And he's like, well, I would like you to marry Kristen Schaal. Her family has a lot of money. And so Hugh Jackman is getting ready to announce his bride. Kristen Schaal's looking really excited, like she's in her very first movie. Or like she's about to be announced as the soon-to-be wife of Duke Leopold. Of whatever. Of Albany. The Duke of Albany. So she recognizes Otis. He must let her in the party, I guess. And it's literally, he is mid-sentence as he's like, the woman I will be taking as my bride is. And then she appears in the back of the room and he's like, Kate McKay, come on down. And they dance and they kiss and... That is the end of the movie. It is. That's it. So there's no fallout from this terrible decision that is made in a moment. Like, she does not think about this choice. She does not have any money, any connections, So the purpose of this marriage for him is, is defeated. For. Anyway... Guys, do you think this romance is believable? No. No. This is going to be one of the lowest scoring movies we've done in a while. It's just, ugh. It's dreadful. Gorsh. It's just such an absurd choice at the end of the movie that it kind of invalidates anything that you might have believed before it. And even before, it's fairly dubious. If you guys want to get an idea of what Kate is getting herself into, I read this book called Unmentionable, The Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners by Therese O'Neill. 
it is written as a almost like a letter to women who read books and imagine themselves at this time women like kate who romanticize the past and it tells you the true reality of it about there's a chapter called you're doing it wrong which is about menstruation oh my god <laughs> There's a ton of just like the real nitty gritty of what life could be like for a woman at this time. And I'd recommend it. It's horrifying to read. There's a whole chapter about hysteria, which is depressing to read about. If you don't want to read a whole book, I highly recommend DigiVictorian on Twitter, which is a guy who just tweets out lifestyle pieces from Victorian magazines. His pinned tweet is submissions to the Titbits magazine, where single female readers had to answer the question, why am I a spinster? And there are great answers, like, because matrimony is like an electric battery. When you once join hands, you can't let go, however much it hurts. And it's called Digivictorian. There's another one, why am I a spinster? Because I am an English lady, and the Americans monopolize the market. Oh my gosh. Or, because I am like the rifle volunteers, always ready, but not yet wanted. Highly recommend Digivictorian, he's a fun time. Now, we do have to rate this movie. On a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is we believe none of the romance, 10 is we believe all of it. Fiona, as our guest. 0. You're a hard 0. I'm 0. I'm going to give it a 1 because Hugh Jackman is very attractive. He's really attractive. I think I'm going to go all the way to a 2. Because I am going to give it a 1 because I think there are individual moments where I can see, like, he's pretty charming, but also she thinks he's a crazy man. And I'm talking myself down now to a zero. Oh, good. Because she thinks, again, he's either a crazy man or a method actor. And she, without thinking, goes back to live in 1876 because of love without thinking about it. I think the only zero we've ever given is Howard the Duck. Oh, and B-Movie. Yep, this is probably on par with them. This belongs in that company. Yep. Yep. Welcome to the zero, Mark. Do we think Kate... Or Leopold is dateable. No. No. The fact that Kate as a character has not left Manhattan in 10 years. Yeah, Kate is out. Fascinating. And Leopold comes from an era in which I think about 14 years later, Oscar Wilde gets sentenced to hard labor for homosexuality. Sure. So not a fan of that era. Let's say you can date Leopold in 2001. Do you do it? Yes. I think the answer is yes. Yes. I think so. He seems really chill with a random black kid showing up in Stewart's apartment. Right. He seems racially well-adjusted and decent on the role of women. Not the best. If you did have to pick one person to date, who would you choose? Officer Viola Davis, of course. Officer Viola Davis. I'm glad we're all on the same page. It is a genuinely good performance. (laughs) She's really good. And you know what? She gets people to pick up their dog poop. Although she's not really successful with Leopold. But, but she's going to find Stuart. Yeah, she is. And you know what? That needs to happen. Academy Award winner, police officer Viola Davis. The character doesn't have a name. Nope. Are you serious? She's just police officer. Oh, okay. Do you oh, think that does. Kate and Leopold would stay together? Of course they will. They They're in the 19th to. century. <laughs> There's no way they can't. What is Kate's alternative? Nothing. Can, now. She, can she come back to the present? I no. assume no, because Stuart's not there to do the science. Because Stuart said so it's like an eclipse. It's like certain yeah. days. So unless Leopold memorized the calculations, they can't do it. All now, right. a lot of the movies that we discuss get turned into musicals. Should Kate and Leopold be a musical? 
this movie should not exist. I'm going to go with no. Would this movie be better as a musical, though? I kind of think yes. Maybe, but... It's I, just on that heightened level. I don't think this needs to be re-brought to the attention of any human. Not only that, it would be even longer as a musical. And it's already two hours. Okay, that's fair. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. If ever there is a Kate and Leopold musical, we will go see it and we'll report back. Nope. I will go see it and we'll report back. <laughs> All right. I think that does it for this movie. Yeah. Next week, we're doing a movie that I'm really excited for us to discuss. One of my favorite movies. Certainly one of the best we've covered for this show. We're talking about James L. Brooks's 1987 film Broadcast News starring Holly Hunter, although it almost didn't. Insane. I know. Deborah Winger, who won the Oscar for Brooks's previous film, Terms of Endearment, was supposed to be the lead in this, but then she got pregnant, so they brought in Holly Hunter. She's perfect. She's incredible. She's the best part of every movie we've done with Holly Hunter in it. That's true. All right, well, until we talk broadcast news, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Last question. Hashtag Fifi Fierce. Hashtag Gloss My Butt. <laughs> What's the best piece of dating advice you got from the film Kate and Leopold? Uh, I think I need to travel to the future to find someone that I can convince this is a better time and bring them back. To live in 2019? Yes. Interesting choice. Yep. What will you use to entice them? Uh, you know, I don't know yet. Tender is the chicken. There we go. That's exactly what I'll use. Fiona's chicken tender blog. Yep, check it out. A new post just came out this... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> months ago. <laughs> check it out. There are some great reviews. Where could people follow you on Twitter? Uh, oh, it's spelt without the vowels. It's tender is the chicken with no vowels. Okay, and you're on Instagram as well? Except there is the E in the. Okay, yeah. and you're on Instagram as well? And that is just tender is the chicken. All right. Yeah. Well post these on social media for you to follow sure perfect my piece of advice actual decent advice given by leopold if you're interested in someone let them know make your intentions clear because then you won't just be living in a world of you know oh no what's gonna happen so it's good to just kind of get it out there talk to them go see a movie don't choose a place or a film just choose a time the movies Go to The Movies in Manhattan at 7 p.m. and hope it works out. I think for me, the number one thing that I take away from this movie is bringing people toast with strawberries on it. Mm. Because that stuff looked delicious. Yeah, it did. That's the nice little breakfast that Leopold makes for Kate. Yeah. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat Can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain Oklahoma Every night my honey lamb and I Sit alone and talk And watch a hawk Making lazy circles in the sky We know we belong to the land And the land we belong to is grand when we say Yo! We're only saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma.